All right, folks. Hey, we opened the windows up, so hopefully it'll cool off a little bit in here. It's been kind of a balancing act this morning. First it was too hot, then it was too cold, then you guys all showed up, now it's too hot again. So uh, we're just going to deal with the road noise and not fall asleep from CO2 suffocation. Does that sound good? Pretty good? Okay, cool. If you're sitting by a window and it's way too cold for you, feel free to stand up and close one. That's fine. I want to make sure you don't feel trapped. You sat there, you didn't know it was going to maybe be cool today. Uh, we want you to be comfortable, if you can be, and awake. Uh, second thing, you guys can see we have our giant screen working, which is kind of cool. Um, yeah, you can clap for the giant screen if you want to. I don't think it knows if you do or not, but that's up to you. Uh, I just say that because this is our first Sunday using this software. So if some things go crazy and suddenly there's a YouTube video playing, there shouldn't be. But if something like that happens, just bear with us. Uh, we think we worked the kinks out. Tyler Wolf, who wears many hats at our church, in addition to leading music on Sundays, uh, does all the planning for that, and is our technology troubleshooter and coordinator. Uh, has done his very best. He's worked a lot of hours this week to make it work. It worked last night at our Saturday night preview service. It should work today. Just giving you that caveat so that you know if something goes sideways. Normally it doesn't, and we're figuring this out. Okay, uh, today, if you have a Bible, it'd be great for you to take some time and turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to kick off in verse 24, and we'll read through the end of verse 33. A little bit later in the service, right toward the end, uh, I'm going to take you to Philippians 4. So if you want to bookmark both places, you can. As always, we're going to have the verses for you up on the screen, the screen now, the big screen, so you can follow along that way. But I think it's worth your time to open your own Bible and look that direction. And I'll let you know, if you don't have one, we'd love to give you a Bible today. Uh, we have a bunch of them out at the welcome table, the same place where those blue folders exist for those of you who are guests. And uh, we'd love to, to hand you one of those as a gift today and let you have one. Uh, it's hard to follow Jesus without a Bible, so we'd like to give you that tool and, and get you started on the right track. This morning, uh, we begin a four-part series, so it's going to be today and the next three weekends, where we're going to talk about our next spiritual practice. So far, in about a year and a half, we have done uh, one overview series. We did that in the spring of 22. Uh, in the fall of 22, we looked at silence and solitude as a practice, and then uh, in January and February of 23, we dialed in on prayer. Uh, since then, we've spent the majority of the rest of this year working through the book of Mark. We took a break to look at some psalms during the summer. And then the last three weeks, we've reviewed where we went so far. So even if you weren't here for those other series prior to this one, uh, if you've been here in the last three weeks, we try to kind of catch you up on where we've been and tell you where we're going. So today, we're going to approach something brand new. If today is your first Sunday at our church, it's a good Sunday to be here because you're going to jump in uh, probably without a lot of prior knowledge or experience, just like the rest of us, even if we've called this church our home for a very long time. Um, our approach to simplicity will be a little bit different from our approach to silence and solitude and our approach to prayer. Silence and solitude and prayer have this in common, that they both start with you changing something about the rhythm of your life. And in a minute, I'm going to show you a picture of how I think this works and let that land a little bit better. But simplicity is different. Simplicity will actually begin with you accepting some truths internally your inner reality will begin to shift and change, and then out of that, you'll be motivated to make some external changes. Um, but before I get ahead of myself, let's back up a little bit and define what even is a spiritual discipline. Maybe you've never heard anybody in your life use that language. Here's how we've defined it so far. That a spiritual discipline is a cooperative activity between you and God. So this is not you self-improving. It's not you hitting the spiritual weight room on your own, by your own power, making yourself into a super-Christian. It's also not passivity. It's not Jesus take the wheel Christianity that says, well, I'm nothing and I can do nothing, and so I'm just going to exist and coast and ignore the hundreds of times that Jesus says, obey me, in the New Testament. It's these things together. 
If you've ever read anything by Jerry Bridges, I'm reading a book right now called The Transforming Power of the Gospel with a friend of mine. The language he uses is dependent responsibility, that you are totally dependent on the Holy Spirit, but you're also responsible for what you do with what the Holy Spirit has given you. So that's a spiritual discipline in general. What we should ask ourselves is, if the objective is to be prepared to obey God out of love, not obey God out of fear, not obey God out of anxiety, not obey God out of guilt, not obey God out of, am I going to score enough social points in life group or at church for people to think I've got my life under control? If my obedience is born out of love, then we can say that our pursuit of simplicity is answering this question. How can simplicity, if it's a spiritual discipline, which I'm going to argue that it is, how can simplicity prepare me for obedience to God that is born from love for God? That is the objective. It's what we're aiming at. It's what I'm going to try to answer today in a very broad way, and then beginning next week, I'm going to try to be specific. For the next three weeks, we'll look at one primary element of a human life, and we'll try to discuss how being spiritually disciplined when it comes to interacting with that thing can benefit our Christian walk. So next week, specifically, we're going to talk about time. How do we spiritually discipline our use of time? How do we interact with time? You've heard me talk a lot the last couple of years about Christians having margin in their lives. Jesus has margin in his life. He can be distracted and derailed without blowing up on people because now the other eight things he was supposed to get done today aren't going to happen. He has the ability within his character to do that. My understanding of him is that that's not just him being God. That's him showing us what a life lived in sync with God the Father can look like that that's actually available. That kind of mental outlook is available to you and I by the power of the Holy Spirit. In two weeks, we'll talk about disciplining our relationship with our possessions. We'll answer the question, do we possess things or do things possess us? Which I think is a very helpful way to navigate the stuff that we have that belongs to us, that we own, that tends to kind of fill our lives up with busyness. And then the final week of this series, we'll interact with how we discipline ourselves. How do we interact with our own selves with simplicity? The spiritual gifts that God has given us as Christians, the talents that we have, the natural ability, the investments that we may have made in different areas of expertise, uh, maybe the schooling we receive, the degrees that we hold. Do we approach those with simple open-handedness, and are we able to use them for the kingdom of God, or do they just build our own kingdoms? So that's where we're going to go. Okay, simplicity, like I hinted at a second ago, is the first spiritual discipline that focuses on making an inner change first so that an outer change can become possible. And here's what I mean. If you don't know, all disciplines sort of exist on this grid. And if you try to find this grid in your Bible, it's not there. I made it up, but I think it's true. So just save yourself a minute. This is just my, my observed experience. I've read a lot of books about this stuff to try to understand how Christians have followed Jesus in all of Christian history. And typically, you either start with an outward change, you change something about the way your life works, and then as a result of that, your inner life is given the opportunity, the space, the room that it needs to change. Or you begin by accepting some sort of different change of mindset, worldview, thought process. Even the word repent means to change your mind, to turn away from your old thinking and toward new thinking. So even that is an opportunity to change something that's going on inside of yourself and your heart or your mind. And then as a result, you should expect your outward life, your time, your possessions, other people, what you do, to begin to change as, as well. Like I hinted at earlier, when we talked about silence and solitude, silence and solitude is a practice where we change something about our outward life, and as a result, our inner life is changed. For example, in order to practice silence and solitude, you have to be quiet. That's an external change. Some of us are never quiet. Some of your spouses are rolling your eyes and going, no, really, never quiet. Like, even he talks in his sleep all night. He never stops. So silence is a choice. To, to be quiet, to quiet down, but also to become alone, which is something that most of us have to choose to do. Now, some of us live 
alone in an apartment, and that's a negative experience for us, but most of us go to work and are part of clubs and part of groups, or we have children, or we have a spouse, and finding true alone time where nobody needs me is pretty rare. So we make those changes. We find a way to get quiet, we find a way to get alone, and as a result, we believe that the intimate relationship we have with God will grow out of that. We talked two weeks ago about the seven stages of silence and solitude, that transformation is possible. As we come to the wall, as we sense our inner reality, as we name our inner reality, all based on the example of Elijah in 1 Kings 19, that we learn what's really going on inside of us, we learn to give that to God, and then we learn to be with him in the stillness that exists once we've kind of backed our dump truck of emotion up and dumped everything out, and we can just be with him then. So it starts with an outward change, results in an inward change. Prayer is different from silence and solitude in that it starts with an outward change and results in an outward change. So choosing to pray means choosing to do something, making time, prioritizing, even if you don't pray out loud with your words, it's you putting your attention on God, it's choosing to open yourself to his voice through the scriptures, through the work of the Holy Spirit, to hear from him. But the intention is, if you hear from God, to actually do something about it. Even the Bible has a lot to say about not just being a hearer of the word, but a doer, someone who puts it into practice. So prayer is an outward change that I make. I carve out time. I prioritize God. I find a way to hear from him. And then I respond to what I hear. I actually do the things that he tells me to do. I go the way he says to go. Simplicity is different from both of those. Simplicity starts with an inward shift in perspective and an inward change in yourself. We're going to get to that by the end of our sermon this morning. But as a result, you'll begin to throw some things away. You may change the way that you manage your schedule. You may find that you're not going to give people lip service anymore, but you're going to let your yes be yes and your no be no. These would be some practical side effects that we're going to work through in the next three weeks. Here's what you need to know. Any discipline that exists in that top left quadrant, any discipline that starts with inner change and results in outer change, those disciplines are the most ripe for legalism more than any other kind of discipline, because here's why. You can shortcut the process. If you don't really care about interchange and all you really want is to show other people that you're a good Christian and you're listening when the pastor talks and you're going to do what he says, then you could go right home right now and list all your mountain bikes on Craigslist and everybody in your life group would go, oh, that person must have really been listening at church. What a great Christian. We can't do it that way. That would be maybe obedience out of social status, or it might be obedience out of fear, or it might be obedience out of anxiety or antagonism. That's not the kind of obedience that God wants. God wants obedience out of love. So in order to put simplicity into practice, and I know I haven't even told you what it is, we haven't even gotten to the Bible yet, I'm just trying to set this, the table a little bit today. In order for that to happen, we've got to start with some interchange, and we've got to resist the urge, especially if you grew up in church, to rush all the way to the end product and just force it. So that you can say, well, I tried it. I sold my mountain bike and I don't ever hear from God. So that was a waste of time and simplicity is not real. It doesn't work. Well, you didn't do really the formula that's been laid out for us in scripture. So to that end, what I want to do for you is I want to try to give you, in my opinion, the most poignant teaching that Jesus has on this idea. We're going to read through Matthew 6, 24 through 33. Then we're going to walk back through it. And we're going to really engage with the argument that Jesus is making. And I think by the time we're done, you'll see that having one set focal point, simplifying your life down to where there's really one thing that you are all about, you'll realize that that's at the core of Jesus' teaching. It's really a starting point for many other disciplines that are going to impact your external life, is creating the margin and the room and the space to be able to walk in obedience to God. So let's look at Matthew 6.24. 
For context's sake, I'll tell you that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is one long sermon that Jesus is giving, where we pick it up in verse 24 of chapter 6 is right about the halfway point. And I think for the people that are sitting on this mountainside listening to Jesus speak to them, they've already seen a kind of simplicity in Jesus' life that goes against what they're used to. Every religious teacher they've ever seen lives a very complicated, very religious, very rigid life where they want to do everything they can to impress the people around them. Jesus is extremely different. Now he's going to answer the question that they're all asking, which is, how do I become like you? How do I do it your way? It sure seems a lot better than what we've seen among the Pharisees. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Now, there's an implied sense of that you are serving a master baked into that statement. That's another sermon for another time, but you might just chew on that in the next week or two and ask yourself, do I even think about my life that way? No one can serve two masters because here's what's going to happen, Jesus says. Either you'll hate the one master and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one master and you'll despise the other. Now, here's an example, Jesus says. For you people, you can't serve God and also serve money. You can't do it. Therefore, he says, I tell you, don't worry about your life. Now, that feels like kind of a weird, sharp turn right there. We're going to come back and talk about how that actually makes logical sense. But if for, if for now you're going, what? That's okay. That's, I think, what everybody else was feeling when Jesus said this in real time, too. He says, I tell you, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about what you'll drink or about your body, what you will wear. He asks a great question. Isn't there more to life than food? Isn't there more to the body than clothing? Look at the birds in the sky. They do not sow, they do not reap, they don't gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add even one hour to his or her life? Why do you worry about clothing? Think about how the flowers of the field grow. They do not work, they do not spin, and yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all of his glory, was clothed like one of these. If you're new to church, Solomon is a guy from way back in the timeline of the people of Israel, the people that Jesus is speaking to in these verses. Richest, most successful, most elaborate king the people of Israel ever had. They all know his name. They don't even have to talk about his last name. They know exactly who Jesus is talking about. He's saying, even the most famous Jewish celebrity that you have wasn't dressed as well as the flowers that grow out of the ground with God's help. Verse 30. If this is how God clothes the wild grass, which is here today and tomorrow is tossed into the fire in order to heat the oven, won't God clothe you even more, you people of little faith? So then don't worry. Don't say, what will we eat? Don't say, what will we drink? Don't say, what will we wear? For even the unconverted pursue these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But above all, pursue his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Sometimes Jesus is confusing. You've heard me say this before. Part of the battle that we are fighting is Jesus did not speak English. He could have, but he didn't. He spoke the language of the people that were near to him. So we're translating here. I've, I've said this to you before. Uh, I was told when I took seminary classes that reading the New Testament in English is like listening to Beethoven on a kazoo. You, you get the sense of it. It's nothing like the, what it's really supposed to sound like. The, the, the worst allegory is... Reading Hebrew in English, reading the Old Testament in English is like somebody kissing your wife and then telling you about it. it that, that's as close as you can get to really experiencing what it's supposed to say. So there's a little bit of a barrier here. We're converting an ancient Near Eastern Jewish man and his worldview and his words into a Western language that's really oriented around helping you figure out what you need to get done today so you can get it all done and feel good about yourself. That's kind of, so there's a little bit of a, of a learning gap here. But as we walk back through these verses, what I want you to see 
is Jesus is an expert. He knows exactly what he's doing. This to me, there's other passages in the Bible that are the same way, but this to me is like a boxing match between me and Jesus. I'm not going to win that boxing match, just so you know. But he's there and he's jabbing. He's jabbing. He's jabbing. And he's opening me up so that finally when he reaches the point where he throws the haymaker and puts me on my back, I'm ready. I receive it. Ask yourself this question. This is what jumps off the page to me when I read this. What if Jesus had just said verse 33 out loud? What if in the middle of this long sermon, he just kind of threw that out as a single sentence note for you to take in your ancient Near Eastern journal, and he'd said something like, more than anything else, pursue the kingdom of God, chase after a life that God sees as righteous, and you'll have nothing to worry about. That's still true. If Jesus says it, it's true. And if he says it's available to people like you and I, then it is. But what would we do with that, right? Let's be honest about who we are. Wouldn't we probably just weaponize that against other people who we think are not pursuing God's kingdom? Isn't it a little bit easier to grab a verse from scripture and wield it like a sword in other people's faces? What Jesus does instead of that is he puts together this very logical kind of breakdown of what it means to be a normal human being, and then he finishes that with this climactic idea, this opportunity that he sets up against the way that most of us actually live. Because most of us, and I'm telling you, I'm part of most of us, all right? I work at this church, and I would still say I have not reached the point where 51% of my time is oriented around pursuing the kingdom of God. I would love for that to be the case. I think I'm taking steps that way. I hope you are too. But Jesus is trying to communicate to a group of people who haven't arrived that this is available to them, but that there's some things that they can do on the way if they haven't quite gotten to where they want to be quite yet. So what does Jesus do? He starts by telling us in verse 24 that it's impossible to hold part of yourself back from God if you're going to give yourself to him. You're either all in or you're all out. Now, that's good news if you're all in, because it tells you, well, okay, even though I'm still tempted other directions to do other things, I'm not really serving another master. I'm still serving God, and so that's good. That raises my confidence level in my own salvation. But probably for most of us, what it does is it, it's that first jab. It throws us off balance a little bit, and we go, whoa, wait a second. So you're saying if there's even 1% of me, Jesus, that's still serving another master, that I'm not, that 99 isn't enough for you? That's not, I'm not serving God even if I think that I might be? What am I supposed to do here? For me, honestly, that concept really starts to make me sweat a little bit at this point. I'm going, okay, I don't, really, <laughs> I don't really like where we're headed here. This isn't something that I have mastered or feel great about in my own life. In verse 25, he goes on and basically says, look, because you can't serve God in money, you have nothing to worry about. Well, why would that be, Jesus? Because that's exactly why I'm worried at this point. <laughs> I feel like probably I am trying to do both of those things. I like how it feels to spend money, and I like how it feels to save money. That's probably what it means to serve money. I don't know. And so I, I, Jesus seems to be thinking that this is becoming good news, and I'm listening to him, and I'm going, I think it's actually becoming worse news for me that I probably have a lot to worry about because I don't know. I don't know if I'm all the way bought into God all the time. I, I like cool stuff. I like to feel comfortable. I don't know how to do that without money being involved in the process. Here's what Jesus assumes, and I think it's a good assumption. He assumes that even if I'm not doing this yet, that because I am trying to follow him, I want to do this. That's what he's assuming. And that would be a great, just a great moment for you just to take a second and self-evaluate. Is that true for you? Jesus is less concerned because our salvation is built on his grace and mercy alone. He's less concerned in our perfect performance. He's more concerned with whether we would like to do the things that he wants us to do whether we're attempting to, intending to, trying to do that. Jesus is alluding to the idea that even if we haven't mastered this yet, wanting God to be our everything is very important for us. Wanting to serve only him and no other master is very important. 
He goes on to say something like, don't be worried. And my response to that is, too late. (laughs) I am. I am worried now, Jesus. I am worried about my life. I'm worried about all the things you say not to worry about. I'm worried about what I eat and drink. I count my calories. I count how much water I drink every day. I am worried about my body. I'm worried about my aching joints at 32 years old. It seems like things are only getting worse from here. Sometimes my pants don't zip up. Every six months, I have a brand new patch of hair on my back. These are things I'm worried about that are not encouraging to me in my life. Jesus says, don't do it, and I have to say, I already am. I have to come to him honestly. That's the best way to interact. We are so tempted, those of us who grew up in churches, to begin to posture and play games in front of Jesus and to say, oh, of course, Jesus, I'm not worried about food, water, clothing, and my body. Of course I'm not when I know that I am. Let's just be honest and see if honesty might lead us to a place where Jesus can solve that problem for us. I think that he will. He ends verse 25 with a great question, right? He says, isn't there more to life than these things? Well, yeah, okay, duh. Yes, Jesus, I'd like to say yes to that. But if Jesus checked my bank account, my credit card statement, does it look like those things are important to me? Probably so. It probably looks like most of my life is made up of eating out and purchasing things for myself and having a good time. So again, Jesus isn't attacking my character. He's trying to help me see myself clearly. Remember, even when he uses parables, this is his objective. He wants to get my wrong thinking off balance enough that I'm open to what is true. Because what is true is hard and it's offensive and it's not something I'm probably gonna be open to by default. So at this point, I am. I'm off balance, right? We're two verses in with Jesus here and I'm reeling a little bit and going, okay, I am worried. I I don't know if I'm serving God with all of myself. I'm not sure what that means about me. I'm tempted, and you may be too, to immediately condemn myself and to say, well, if that's what it takes to be a Christian, then I never can be. If perfection in this life is the objective, then, then count me out. I don't even want to try. I can't achieve that, so why would I spend time wasting time to do that? Now, here's the good news. Jesus says, look at, look at the birds. That's the good news. He says, look up at the birds. Literally, I think these people are sitting on a mountainside right here at the edge of the water. There's got to be seagulls diving and fishing constantly or eating trash, whatever seagulls do. And he's going, look, right now, look up at the birds. I know I just gave you some bad news. You're reeling. You're on your back foot. You're almost down for the count. Look at the birds. The birds don't have anxiety. Did you know that? I mean, I think that's what he's asking. He's going, look at these, all these birds, and none of them have any of, of the anxieties that you have. These birds don't own mirrors. These birds don't know their waist size. These birds don't have a target calorie count for every day. And again, I'm not picking on those things. In times and places, they may be fine. But when they own us and they produce anxiety, they're working against God's will for our lives. Jesus is saying, if you're in a place right now where you're hearing what I have to say and it's causing you to despair, I have good news. There's a teacher for you. And it has two wings and a beak. And you can look at it as a real-life example. All of the birds who've ever lived in all of creative history have not had the anxieties that you have. He says, these birds, they don't build barns, they don't build garages, they don't have connexes on their property to hold their stuff and keep the snow off, they don't park their Jeep in a heated garage, and no bird has ever had a bank account. And yet, they seem to be free from the cares and anxieties that are racking our souls. Jesus seems to think the birds are doing pretty well. Here comes another left jab. And he asks a question, he says, okay, well maybe your response to that would be, well Jesus, I have to worry because I have real problems. I have problems these birds can't comprehend. No bird has ever had to go to war. No bird has ever lost their retirement when the stock market crashed. No bird has ever had to go through a divorce. No bird has had a wayward child turn their back on the family and denounce us. So Jesus asks us this question. Okay, you have reasons to worry. How has that helped? Has it helped? Have you, by worrying, added a minute to your life? He wants to know. 
Has it helped you? I've told you this before, church, but so many of us spend our time down on our hands and knees trying to stop the world from spinning. And Jesus is not saying there's not good reasons to care. He's not saying be irresponsible, be disconnected, move up into a cabin with no windows in the mountains and never talk to anybody ever again and go full monk. It's not what he's saying. He's saying the things you're spending your time worrying on are not yours to worry about. There are other things that are a part of your life that you should care about. Much of Jesus' teaching should carry weight. We should be thinking about it, considering it. That's where he's going to go. But he's saying right now, you have fallen behind even the birds in, in the class of following God that is the whole world. Even these animals and the flowers that don't even have brains are making a better grade than you are. That's an opportunity. That's an invitation into something that most of us have never experienced. If you're like me, when I became a Christian, it affected my anxiety very little. It affected one area of anxiety that I was going to burn in hell forever. Great, that's good. That should go away. That fear should leave me. But it just didn't seem to seep into the rest of the areas of my life. Jesus is going to solve that problem for us, but he's not done identifying the problem quite yet. God cares for the flowers. He cares for the birds. Jesus is presenting the portfolio of thousands of years of God having never forgotten to clothe a single flower as evidence that it's probably okay for you to trust him. It's probably not as risky as you think it is. He has never failed. A petal of a flower has not hit the ground without him knowing when and where and why. And yet we think that by saving a little more money and freaking out and not going to sleep at night and trying to control everyone and everything around us, we're going to outdo him? We're going to compensate for him somehow? Is he absent, I think, is sort of a question that hangs in the air in this whole conversation. He's not. He's near to us. Excuse me. He's near to us, and we can trust him. So now comes the profound idea that's at the center of all these examples and all of Jesus' pointed questions. This jumps out at us from verse 32, if you're following along. Jesus says, The unconverted pursue these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. In other words, if we can call back to verse 24, Jesus is saying, People who do not love God, people who are mastered by money, they spend their lives in hot pursuit of what? what they'll eat, what they'll drink, what they'll wear, and what they look like. In other words, the basic ingredients of the good life, right? So now maybe this is beginning to click for you. You look around yourself. You're on the internet. You watch TV. You've seen a movie in the last couple of years. You have friends and neighbors on your street. You see what new vehicles pull in and out of their driveway. You see the way they dress. You see what they care about and how they brag about it on the internet. Jesus is saying it's the default position of humans to figure out what they think the good life is and to basically sell themselves out to get there. And yet, the things that really constitute that good life, if you were to drop that good life on the ground and let it shatter, he's saying there would be nothing inside of it. It's a shell that you're building for yourself out of what you'll eat and what you'll drink and what you'll wear and how you look, and by extension, what people think of you and whether you're successful and whether you've done enough. It's a shell. It may be a beautiful shell. It may be a Fabergé egg. Wonderful, right? The kind of thing your grandmother keeps on her shelf at home, but if it shatters on the floor, there will be nothing inside of it. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying there is another way to live. There is another way to go where you don't have to be a slave to these things. You could actually, and this may seem too good to be true, you could actually reach a point where you are not concerned with these things again. And not that you've learned to act like you are, church people, that you actually, genuinely, in your heart of hearts, are no longer concerned. Wouldn't that be a miracle? You guys know this, I've told you before, one of the things I do on a weekly basis is I practice a Sabbath. Part of that Sabbath is usually by about the middle of that day, I begin to calm down and slow down to the point that I experience a little bit of contentment. But here's the honest truth to you. 
when the clock hits midnight, usually I'm asleep, but as Tuesday turns into Wednesday and my Sabbath turns back into a work day, typically my experience is that all of that anxiety comes rushing right back in again. That contentment that I've found, even for me, a person who's been trying to do this for years, even for me, that contentment is not my default state. It's something that I have to slowly massage my way back into with God's help. So I know for sure, when I speak to a group of people who've maybe never even thought about doing that before, that that kind of contentment, that healthy disconnection from the things that drive us crazy is, is life-changing if it's something that could enter into your life. It would be so different from the way that you think and live that I really think it would change everything about you. So why? Why can Jesus say with authority that to pursue these things is a hollow pursuit and a waste of your time? Because God's already taking care of them. It's another example of the first man and the first woman saying to God, I know better than you, as all sin is. It's saying to God, you're not doing enough for my food, my clothing, my body, and, and what I drink. You're not. You're not sufficient enough for me. So I've got to worry about this stuff because you're not holding up your end of the bargain. And that is essentially the same thing that Adam and Eve said to God when they said, no, we're going to eat of the fruit of the tree. We know what's best for us. It's the same thing every person who's ever rejected God has said. I know better. I know what I want. I know what I deserve. I will go my own way. So now Jesus lands the plane in verse 33. Now we see that he's been jabbing, 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 and here comes the haymaker. He says, above everything else, those of you who have been mastered by God, chase after the kingdom of God and chase after the righteousness of God. And if you'll do that along the way, you will always have what you need. So to go back to verse 24 and just remind you, Jesus is speaking to a group of people, laying out a possible reality for them that they're not participating in yet. And he drives all the way through these examples, the birds, the flowers, old King Solomon, all to get you to the point where you go, you're right, Jesus, it isn't working for me. That's the genius of Jesus in this argument, is he puts us in a place where we admit on our own, simply by answering the questions he asks, no, we haven't figured this out, no, it isn't helping, we haven't added a minute to our life, and it's driving us crazy. So what do I do, Jesus, is the question that's implied at the end of verse 32. Jesus answers, take that energy Take that focus, take that anxiety, and aim it all at the kingdom of God. And if you would do that, if you would fill your life up with a singular purpose of pursuing God's kingdom and growing your own character, not your performance, your character, then everything that you're worried about will take care of itself. And that's a big, scary promise. It's hard for us to believe that, but that's what we're going to look at today and the next three weeks. So we're nearly done. I want to throw a handful of definitions at you, and then we're going to land the plane this morning. I think simplicity is probably worth defining, so I would define it this way. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Simplicity is, to me, a mindset, that's that interchange, a mindset of joyful unconcern. Joyful unconcern for what? For possessions, for prestige, and for personal advancement. Possessions, prestige, and personal advancement. So how do I apply that? Well, I think I apply that by prioritizing the kingdom of God actively. To actively prioritize the kingdom of God and personal righteousness by doing what? By willingly disengaging with opportunities to possess more things than you have, opportunities to achieve more social prestige than you have, and opportunities to personally advance. Because if you don't know it, growing in personal righteousness doesn't look like advancement to the world. It's not measurable, and very few people clap for you because you became more honest. <laughs> they clap for you because you became more effective and more efficient and more aggressive and more clear. But those are not the things that Jesus prioritizes. If you will do that, if you will begin to take careful, measured steps to embrace that inner change. Remember, this has to start inside of you. You can't jump to the end, sell all your stuff, and hope everybody at church is going to clap. If you can do that, 
If you can begin to become the kind of person who willingly disengages with opportunity, then what will happen? Well, I believe that you will find yourself cultivating an abundance of contentment, a thing that you don't have a lot of. Contentment, even in churches, is a very limited resource. And I don't think that's God's intention. I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind for you and I. What does it mean to be content is a question worth asking and answering, and I think it's an inner sense of God's all-sufficiency. It's not that you're not concerned with anything. You've got to hear me here. We can't go all the way to what's called asceticism, where we move up in the mountains into a cabin with no windows and live the life of a monk. God's solution to your problems is not isolation. It's not to begin to see things like food and water and clothing as wrong or sinful. It's whether or not you're engaging with those things with this kind of driving anxiety. Are you addicted to worrying about tomorrow? Jesus has a solution for that. You can open up time and margin and space to be with God and do the things of God and live like and become like God, belonging to him, beholding to him, beholding him. But you're not going to do that if your life stays this complicated Rubik's Cube of negativity that a lot of us feel like we're navigating all the time. Contentment can be defined sometimes as lacking wanting, right? That I don't want for anything or maybe that we have all we need. I want to push on that definition just a little bit by pointing to the entire middle and upper class of America <laughs> who are like the richest people who've ever lived per capita and yet very few of us is content. I don't think we can say that really with honesty. I don't think we can say if I just had everything I needed, I would be content. Jesus is telling a group of people in Matthew 6, you have everything you need and you're not content. The having isn't where the contentedness comes from. It's knowing that God has you. That's where contentedness comes from. And that's a big difference. And that's a lot harder to do. It takes time. And it's frustrating because we don't always do it. It doesn't stick right away. Um, you've probably heard this before, but modern life in the West, career advancement, is kind of described as a life that's always going up and to the right. And I know I'm doing left for me, but I'm doing right for you. Up and to the right, up and to the right. Every career change, every child that's born, every time our kids grow up a little bit more or we get a raise, it's always a level up. We think in terms of level up. We really wouldn't take anything seriously if we thought it was a level down. We would immediately dismiss it and go, why, why would I ever move to a smaller house? For what? So, I, so it's more cramped? So we're on top of each other? So it's too loud? So I can never find time to myself? Why would I sell the things that I like? I have enough money for a snow machine, so I'm going to have a snow machine. I live in Alaska, I'm going to have a snow I want all this gear. I want to go on these trips. I want to eat this way. I want to drink this way. My friends, I'm not telling you that those things in and of themselves are wrong or bad. What I'm saying to you is there is a mindset that sets you free from being a slave to that kind of thinking that gives you a choice to make each time, that gives you the ability with great comfort and stability inside yourself to ask yourself, is this advancement worth it? Is it really going to be good? Is it good for the kingdom of God? You may live in a world, you may work in a job that feels so secular and so separate from what God is doing that you've never even thought about it that way. Jesus seems to think that part of following him is reaching a point, and you can't just jump there, but reaching a point where you pursue his kingdom and your personal character growth above everything else. And that if you can do that, that that will simplify and separate you from the things that are driving you crazy with anxiety right now. That that's the answer. Trying not to become anxious so that your life simplifies is not the answer. Putting God's kingdom first is the solution to your anxieties. But that's hard to do. It's hard to trust God with that and to turn your back and your mind away from the things that you think you really need to spend your time worrying about and thinking about. The Apostle Paul said this famously in Philippians chapter 4. He said, I've learned to be content in any circumstance. I've experienced times of need. I've experienced times of abundance. 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of contentment, whether I go satisfied or hungry, whether I have plenty or I have nothing. I am able to do all things through the one who strengthens me. My friends, what I want you to notice is Paul seems to think that contentment is hard when you have nothing. We would all agree with that and say, sure, I don't want to have nothing. I don't think I could be content with nothing. But Paul is holding having nothing up against to having everything as an equally threatening position to be in. He's saying, I have learned to stay content, to stay the same Paul when I have nothing and when I have everything. The implication is that having nothing can change you, but also having everything can change you. And that's the lie that's underneath a lot of our consumerism in the West, is we don't believe that that's true. We think that we can master our stuff, we can own our stuff, we can control our stuff. We feel pretty comfortable admitting that if we lost everything tomorrow, that would be a crisis point. But very few of us would see an influx of a few million dollars as an equal crisis. From Paul's perspective, you can get too much stuff. You can reach a point where who you are and your ability to trust internally in God's all-sufficiency is threatened by how many cars are in your driveway and how many dollars are in your bank account. This is not a sermon about guilting you into giving money to the church. Let me just go all the way there so you don't worry that that's where we're headed. This is a sermon about you corrupting yourself by serving two masters. That's what Jesus said. Paul is simply echoing what Jesus said in Matthew 6. How do I know this? Because he shares the secret of his contentment three verses earlier in Philippians 4.8. He says, this is what you think about. You think about what is true. You think about what is worth respecting. You think about what is just. You think about things that are pure. You set your mind on things that are lovely. You set your mind on things that are commendable. You think on things that are excellent and praiseworthy. That's where you put your mental energy. All that anxiety, all that worry, it has a place it's supposed to go. It's concern for whether or not the kingdom of God will continue to expand across the face of this planet and the cosmos as a result. That's where you put your energy. That's where you put your time. That's where you put your best strategic thought if you are a follower of Jesus. Your spreadsheets, your journals, your vision boards, if they're not kingdom of God oriented, Jesus says it's a hollow egg and when it hits the ground, there's gonna be nothing left. A few verses earlier in Matthew 6, Jesus says you can put treasure one of two places. You can keep it here in a barn or a bank account or somewhere in Switzerland where nobody can find it, right? People do that in movies where it's untraceable and it's unthreatenable. You can do whatever you want. Take the most extreme measures you can think of. Buy a big safe, bury it in the backyard, never tell anybody. At some point, you will leave and that stuff will stay. Or you can put your treasures in eternity and they'll be waiting on you there. They'll be the most consistent, predictable, untouchable investment you can make in this life that will last for eternity. That's what's available to you. How do you do it? Jesus said, put first the kingdom of God. Paul said the same thing in Philippians 4.8. He just said it to a group of Gentile people who don't know what the kingdom of God is. So maybe his list is a little bit easier for you to process. You put your mind, you put your heart on the things of God. You throw your energy, you put the inner motor that you have into that, and you let that drive your life. And the things that you're spending your time worrying about right now will necessarily take care of themselves. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, in summary, that simplicity is this. Simplicity bears the fruit of contentment such that you and I can eat escargot off of a silver plate with a celebrity in a mansion, or we can eat half of a three-day-old cheeseburger out of the trash off a dirty piece of cardboard with a guy who lives in Centennial Park, and we're the same us in each place. 
we're the same us. Our integrity, our character, our Christ-likeness is resolute. It is a steel cable that is not bent and turned by prejudice and fear and impressing other people and opportunity and whatever ladder we think we can climb. That's what's available to you. If that's not interesting, if that's not appealing, if you have no desire to do that, then grit your teeth for three weeks and we'll go back to Mark and we'll let Jesus speak for himself. You don't have to do this. Remember, our identity is rooted in Christ's grace. This is just an opportunity to take a little piece of what's waiting for you in eternity and apply it to the life that you live now. You can become like Christ. You can become part of his mission to reconcile the world. A complicated, stressed out, anxious life with no margin that's essentially slavery to the things you own and the person that you might eventually become, that's not the life Jesus has. The life Jesus has for you is simple, it's clear, it has one objective, and it's open to you. And we're going to talk for the next three weeks about steps of discipline you can take if you would like to become that kind of person. So I want to pray that for you. I want to ask that God would just give you the courage to approach this topic and engage with it a little bit and become self-evaluative and maybe find some things out about yourself and what he wants for you. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. As with any spiritual discipline discussion, it's very, very tempting to decide that this is what Christianity is supposed to be and to take all the eggs that we have and put them all in this basket and throw ourselves at trying to look like and force ourselves into being simple people because that seems to be the most important thing in your kingdom. And that's not true. I pray instead, God, that you would remind us that we must be rooted first in your grace and mercy and then out of that grace and mercy, out of the security that we have, that we belong to you, that grace is a gift, that faith is a gift, not of our own doing, that by the power of the Holy Spirit as new creations, we have an opportunity. And that's it. That's all it is. It's a chance to begin to move forward into a life that, frankly, we're going to live eventually. Many of us may never get this on this side of heaven, and it may take stepping into eternity to realize that this was always available, and that's fine. I believe that you will love us the same and that there's no real threat other than whether or not our lives go the way we want on this side of eternity. But I do ask God corporately for us as a church who wants to be an image, a picture of a transformed life, of the power of what your spirit can do, that we would willingly open ourselves to the possibility that we have maybe learned from our sick culture how to be sick ourselves. And how to enslave ourselves to things and to stuff and to ideas and to opportunities instead of you. Clear the air between us, God. Make us able, please, to hear you and to see you. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.